millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Well, to kick things off, we obviously don't want to give this dud and joke of a quote-unquote rally any more attention than we need to. But obviously this past weekend, the free, the January 6th quote-unquote political prisoners rally occurred in Washington, D.C., right near the U.S. Capitol. Generously speaking, dozens of people showed up, as we predicted um, that would be the ballpark estimate of turnout and attendance. You, being someone who follows these things intimately and keeps your ears very close to the ground on this, how did you end up covering it this past weekend? Yeah, well, look, I went to another event that has about as much bearing on the future of our republic. And I speak, of course, of the Mid-Atlantic Bassetown Convention uh. Uh, out in out in Northern Virginia. I Like, look, you know, I love covering these right-wing events. There's always something to learn, usually. But, you know, we had called from the beginning that this one was going to be a stinker. Like, you know, a lot of other people, this one was basically going to be a flop. Even Donald Trump said ahead of time it was a setup. And so I thought, why don't I go hang out in Northern Virginia with some Basset Hounds? And I'll tell you what, I had a great time. They had a, a pie-eating contest, which was curiously segregated by gender, which like, I, I don't know if there's a known gender difference between pie eating among basset hounds, but but otherwise, no, it was a fabulous time. They had some big old Brutuses and some puppies, and um, seems like I did not miss a ton on the National Mall. Was the turnout more than 2,000 at that event as opposed to I the... will tell you what, I think probably more people, if you subtract press from the, the Capitol event, I think more people and especially if you subtract undercover FBI agents, I would say more people attended the basset hound rally. I would definitely, or rally I say, like, you know, as a political movement, attended the basset hound ramble. Definitely say that's true. The one thing I do want to say about the, the Capitol event is there have been some great memes coming out of it. I don't know if you saw that picture of like the five or six guys who look like like they just walked right out of Quantico in terms of the, the <laughs> did you see this picture, Swin? Yes, yes, I did. Like it's just like six it's like guys, you can't hang out together. I mean, it looks like they literally went to like Uniqlo together and it was like, okay, get one short pair of shorts, one t-shirt. These guys just like they look they look like right out of the Fed school. Right. They might as well have been wearing like matching actually no i don't have to tell you that i'm a cop if you ask me t-shirts right exactly exactly and so i will say that was like not the best opsec it's like you guys can't all hang out together don't all like wear the same brand of sunglasses and the same watch certainly there were some i think some not great undercover work going on there well one important question i i do have to ask you on this broader topic you and i are both staunch cat loyalists and 
kitten partisans. What were you doing at a Basset Hound convention in Virginia? Yeah, I mean, I come from a long, a long line of Basset Hound lovers. You know, I grew up with my parents, grew up with them, and so we're, we're kind of keeping it going. Every year when I can make it, I like to go out to the Basset Hound Ramble. I haven't been able to make it for the past couple of years, but but I went, and you know, they have a, a rent a Basset booth for those of us like myself who don't have a Basset. You can rent one for the day, and it's just a great experience. I mean, you know, it, a lot of my work focuses on on some pretty unpleasant subcultures, and so it's nice to have a nice subculture to immerse myself in as well. Well, I mean, they are kind of cat-like dogs, so I'll give you a pass on this one. Moving on, you have been doing some reporting lately on this upcoming convention or event, shall we say, billed under the banner of Truth About Cancer Live. And it just so happens to be, along with telling these supposed quote-unquote truths about cancer, they also want to tell you what they believe is the truth about vaccines, including the COVID-19 vaccine. And what do you know, the keynote speaker is not just any Trump, but one of Donald Trump's sons, Eric. How did he end up at this thing? You actually talked to him a little bit about his upcoming appearance and just how anti-vaccine is this? Are they trying to hide it at all? What the hell is this conference? Sure. So this is like, obviously, the the world of anti-vaccine people has become more relevant and, and more prominent than ever uh, in our in the pandemic. But there's this event called Truth About Cancer. And there's this kind of group that's run by this couple named Ty and Charlene Bollinger. And these are kind of like the some of the, the most notorious anti-vaccine people out there, even pre-COVID. They started out as these kind of anti-chemotherapy people. They're sort of part of this kind of quackery group. All these people kind of roll together at conferences. And they like some of them endorse this thing called Black Salve, which is essentially like a cost thing that burns into your skin. All these kind of like just totally nutty cures. So what they say is the truth about cancer is that chemotherapy is bullshit. And that you can do these other kind of like wacky cures. Like, so for example, they have a thing that is supposed to prevent, I think, like sort of various kinds of like way, like magnetic waves or electric waves from reaching you. If people saw a Better Call Saul, it's kind of like a similar thing to how his brother gets into that kind of like, just kind of like very kind of like unseeable waves. And of course, these machines cause hundreds of dollars. So this is where these people are starting out from, and they've gotten fabulously rich off this. And so then they pivot to anti-vaccine stuff as well. So what do they think about the vaccines? Well, they don't love them. I can guess, but give me a graphic readout. So even before COVID, they were on the sort of the general anti-vaccine thing. They teamed up with, and and this becomes important in terms of this conference, these really are some of like the big heavyweights of anti-vaccine stuff. They have this one report dubbed the members of like the disinformation dozen, you know, which sounds very uh, like, like we're in the old West. They hang out with people like Andrew Wakefield, who had this report claiming that that was retracted, claiming that vaccines cause autism, kind of like the granddaddy of anti-vaccine stuff, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So anyways, they're having this conference in Nashville. And when is the conference? Mid-October, like October 22nd. And so I noticed that, you know, of course, I follow these people on Telegram to keep up with their antics. Uh, Charlene Bollinger was recently posing for pictures with uh, Mel Gibson and Jim Caviezel, who, of course, we we remember as being involved in The Passion of the Christ. Two very on the level guys yeah <laughs> like i mean that's a that's a cosign right there so anyways they're having this event and eric they've got roger stone coming but eric trump is the keynote speaker and obviously the trump family has kind of like wink winked at anti-vaccine people in the past but it struck me as unusual that eric trump would be headlining such an event so i emailed him and this is my first time i think emailing with a celebrity apprentice judge and so i emailed him and i said eric like what's up man why are you doing this 
And he said, well, to be clear, I've been vaccinated. And in fact, I think the COVID vaccine is the one of the greatest achievements in, in terms of my father's administration doing it, one of the greatest achievements in human history. But, and I was like, well, so why are you doing this anti-vaccine thing? It was a quote here. As to labeling something anti-vaccine, an anti-vaccine event, it wouldn't make much sense for me to attend as a vaccinated person if it was. And it's like, yeah, I guess so. But then why are you doing it? And did you get a response? I did not. So I don't think this is what's going to end up happening. But if he went there as a keynote speaker, can you imagine if he got up there and started saying, you guys need to get vaccinated. Stop pushing this anti-Trump vaccine propaganda. Just imagine the cacophonous booze that would just hit him in the face. Well, I'm sure that's his plan. He's going undercover. He's going to blow the lid off this whole movement. It is the, I guess, the concerning thing here, besides whatever check Eric may be collecting, is that we're seeing this, the Trump family sort of mainstreaming a lot of this anti-vaccine stuff and endorsing it, if tacitly. Right. And then with the other hand, trying to claim, no, 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 we're pro-vaccine. In fact, it was a great achievement of mine. Go out and get it. But then waving like enormously harder with the other, oh, wait, no, your freedoms are important. Just remember, we respect your freedoms. It's a weird balance, not just but Trump, but many of his Republican allies and, of course, several members of his family are trying to say that this is one of the greatest achievements ever and you should give Donald Trump the lion's share credit for it. But then it's immediately followed by, no, 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 please don't hurt me for saying that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it... it it's a weird situation. I mean, the people who organized this event, you know, they've called the the COVID vaccine like a shot of poison. You know, it's like the death vaccine. And then, you know, they're saying, you know, and if you really think the vaccine's so bad, it's sort of crazy to be have like, all right, and here's Mr. Poison Jr. to, you know, to run our event. <laughs> but I will say, like, it's not just the organizers who are wackos that Eric's going to be hanging out with here. I've got a list here of some of our fellow speakers. There's a gentleman named David Avocado Wolf. Great name. Mr. Avocado here. This guy's like a, a very powerful figure in the sort of the quackery industry. And this guy, he, he's listed as a medicinal mushroom hunter, but he also is a big colloidal silver guy. Obviously, colloidal silver is famous for uh, turning your skin blue. We've got crystal, we've got a lot of QAnon people going as well. There's a guy named, I think, Patriot Street Fighter, who he's sort of a notorious QAnon guy. Uh, we also have a lady named Crystal Teeny, who is sort of a QAnon yoga influencer. You know, if you remember last year when QAnon was getting very into yoga, of course. She self-identifies as not just an influencer, but also a freedom fighter, in all caps. Right, we're reading her agenda here. I mean, it, it is funny with these things where it's like, if it's like, I don't know, I kind of just like post stuff, then you're a freedom fighter. It, it, that's kind of the, the default. I'm the Mujahideen of Maga. And then finally, we have Randy Jackson of the Jackson 5. <laughs> so... Oh... It's a, it's a wide variation here, but it's going to be an interesting weekend for Eric, I think. But like I said, I mean, there is kind of this increasingly the Trump movement, even more so than it was before, is becoming synonymous with the anti-vaccine movement. James O'Keefe had this dropped a video Monday night that is just like a supposed federal whistleblower on the vaccine safety. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's just some nurse and some random person saying, you know, don't trust the vaccine. It doesn't really hold up. So we're sort of seeing this Venn diagram become one big circle. Obviously, not an ideal situation. When these guys are hollering about all of this anti-vaccine conspiracy theory bullshit, do they ever try to square that with how Trump occasionally praises or endorses the COVID-19 vaccines? Like, is there ever a moment where they're like, okay, how do we fit this peg into this 
into here, even though it doesn't quite fit? Or do they just ignore it entirely? Because guys like James O'Keefe have to be at least non-dumb enough, or at least not completely far gone enough to realize that Trump is saying these things publicly. Like, they all know that this is happening. (laughs) They mostly ignore it. I mean, I'm kind of curious about why James O'Keefe is getting into this. I think it probably is pretty good for donations, among other things. But like, more broadly, I think people, it's either, you know, Trump was misled or something like that. So... But do they ever say that? And not to put words in James O'Keefe's mouth, but certainly other people do that either Trump was misled or that he kind of didn't know what was really going on. I mean, which is obviously, you know, something we saw sort of throughout the Trump administration, right? When he would do something that the base didn't really like, they would just say, you know, it's his advisors who are wrong. It's that darn Mark Meadows or uh, Reince Priebus or what have you. Okay, well, even though leaders of the Republican Party, including but certainly not limited to Donald Trump, uh, are kind of pussyfooting around this, there are some people in the expanded MAGA universe who are being a little bit more emphatic, even if they're doing it in kind of batshit ways, about, dear MAGA listeners and readers, you need to get vaccinated now. Stop doing this to your own movement and your own Republican brethren. One of the guys who has been going hard at this, I don't want to give him too much credit for it, but it is a reality that he has been doing a series, not just a one-off thing, but a series of columns lately at Breitbart, urging Breitbart's readership to go out and get vaccinated right now if they haven't. He's a guy named John Nolte, and he is someone who our listeners might be familiar with, especially if we have a bunch of extremely online listeners. Yeah, John Nolte's a pretty notorious character. This guy's got a bad attitude overall. Not a pleasant guy on Twitter. Not a pleasant guy in his writing. I will also say my kind of personal fascination with John Nolte is that he posted pictures. He posted like he had this kind of like arc on Twitter where he was remodeling his basement and it looked like it was like something out of like a Blumhouse movie. Like, I mean, it was like, why? Like, it was like, oh, that basement was crappy. I can see why you want to change it. And then it's like, no, that's what you did with it. I mean, it just looked really, it was just really grim. For years, his Twitter avatar has been a picture of Al Bundy. Right. Well, he's also kind of one of these classic like a very kind of like when Andrew Breitbart was still alive, a character you saw a lot on the right and particularly at Breitbart was like Hollywood conservative. And so he's one of these guys who I I think does like movie reviews and one of these guys who says politics is downstream of culture. Like we haven't heard that 20,000 times already. Right. He's one of these guys who blogs relentlessly about how there's too much critical race theory in my last man standing or something like that. Well, the funniest thing is all these guys, a bit of a tangent here, but how many of these guys are like, the problem is Hollywood, the the left's taking over Hollywood, asterisk, and the solution is giving me money to make my own movie. (laughs) So John Dolte, however, has, is now on the side of the angels and people got mad about this column. This ran on September 10th, but it, it sort of got, got a little juice more recently. And basically what he's doing here, he's been tweeting like, hey, dum-dums, get the vaccine. And he's noting he's kind of an old guy. A lot of, I think, Breitbart's readership is pretty old. And so he's saying, hey, maybe we don't want to die of COVID. So what he's doing here is sort of a quadruple reverse psychology thing. So he's he argues essentially that the reason people on the left, and, and he's particularly mad at Howard Stern, which is sort of a Gives you an example of John Nolte's like boomer mindset. Noted Democratic leader, Howard Stern. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the people, okay, he's mad at Jimmy Kimmel, which is also a classic right wing thing to do. But also Bette Midler, who I think truly speaks of of our current zeitgeist. He has the exact brain as Donald Trump. Cannot get over their respective rage injections about Bette Midler, Rosie O'Donnell, Probably Barbara Streisand. It's just a conservative grievance mind that's eternally trapped in 1991. If a person couldn't skip the line at Studio 54, John Nolte doesn't want to hear about him. Here's the deal. So he, so basically his argument is that the left 
is both making fun of the unvaccinated and imposing vaccine mandates, not because people should get vaccinated, but in fact, because they want to anger Republicans into not getting it. And so they want you, the average Republican, to say, F you, Bette Midler, I'm not getting vaccinated, essentially despite you. I've said for a long time that the way to spot a true hardcore member of the Trump and Republican base is not to ask them about immigration, definitely not to ask them about economic policy, but just to ask them if they know or really intensely care about who was most recently on the cover of Vogue magazine. Because if they are a hardcore cultural conservative, they will know more so than your average like Manhattan liberal, and they will really be upset that it was not Melania Trump. They will care and they will want 18 Fox News and Fox Business segments about it. So this kind of feeds into that theory of mine. You know, I think that's an interesting theory, you know, if we could expand that. I was just recently listening to talk radio and someone was going on again about the lack of why is Melania not on the cover of Vogue. And it is sort of like they hate the fairness doctrine, except when it comes to Vogue. And it's like, well, simply we know they're apportioned out to four first ladies. This is unfair. Well, they like to brag all the time about these massive audiences that they've gotten online, on conservative talk radio, et cetera, et cetera, and saying, oh, look how much better ratings we get on this than some of our liberal media counterparts. So if that's the case, why can't you just be happy with that? There is, But there's still something in your soul that needs validation for from the covers and the editors of these magazines that you yourselves claim are losing readership by like the hundreds of thousands every year or whatever. It is a fascinating conundrum. So John Nolte is kind of one of these these big guys. And, and so his column here, he says, so no one wants to cave to a piece of shit like that, referring to Howard Stern, or a scumbag like Fauci or any of the scumbags at CNN, LOL. So we don't. He spells CNN, LOL, by the way. It's all that's just six good. letters together. Yeah, th- that's great writing. And what's the result? They're all vaccinated and we're not. And when you look at the numbers, the only numbers that matter, which is who's dying, it's overwhelmingly the unvaccinated who are dying. And they have manipulated many of their political enemies into the unvaccinated camp. So basically he does this. It's sort of like the we thought we were owned. Right. And and this is what so much of politics boils down to, right, is who's owning who. And he's like, we thought we were owning them by not getting vaccinated. But it turns out if you don't get vaccinated, you die. Is it us who's been owned? Then he kind of comes to this conclusion in the next segment, if you could read this one. I could be wrong. Maybe the left isn't that evil and sly. But when I think of the unvaccinated lying, they're dying, being told by their doctor, sorry, there's nothing more we can do to get enough oxygen to your lungs. I don't laugh. My heart breaks for that person. Imagine lying there dying, thinking that all you had to do was get the Trump vaccine. Even (laughs) if this isn't the left's plan, who's owning who? End of song. Who's owning who? That's the political question of our times. There were some people online responding to this with kind of tunnel vision saying, well, this may be openly and patently moronic, but if it gets some more people vaccinated, like, go ahead. I'm all for it. I, of course, agree with that in abstract, in in concept, but in terms of the real world, I would be shocked if this moved the needle to any... Look, it's it's not going to move the needle. To any understandable or decipherable degree. <laughs> it's not going to move the needle, but the CDC should be paying this guy. John Nolte, this is like a deep cover agent, right? This is like, like if, if you may have seen at the September 18th rally, there was like a law enforcement guy who appeared to be dressed up as Antifa, but he was wearing like these white sunglasses from Hot Topic, seemingly. 
And, you know, this guy is undercover. And the cops came in and busted him because they thought he was a bad guy. But this is – we need to recognize – this guy's John Nolte is giving us kind of like the cop head nod. He's like, I know, I know, but, like, I got to do it. So we got to be encouraging this stuff. And just because you enjoy doing things like psychically kicking yourself in the nuts every week, have you been surfing the broader Breitbart.com webpages? And have you noticed that others – in that universe are getting on the same page? Or if you actually read Breitbart.com, is there a conflict between this and some of their other vaccine or vaccine mandate coverage going on right now? Yeah, Breitbart kind of honestly kind of tries to avoid a lot of... John Nolte, I would say, is doing this kind of like this psyop on his own. He's a Ronin. He's gone solo and he's he's trying to pull this on his own. I will say the reaction is absolutely furious from the Breitbart readership. Whenever he tweets like, hey, maybe we don't die, he gets all these responses that are like, wow, John, I didn't think you you would join the deep state. So, you know, I, I think this is a this is a lonely journey on John Nolte's part, but I for one salute him. Right, and John Nolte, if I recall correctly, feel free to correct me if I'm mistaken, Will, here, is as MAGA as it gets. He still tweets his uh, grievances about the 2020 election, he like he is sort of your platonic ideal of a Trump loving cultural conservative in America and someone who is representative of that element of the Republican base. But this is the one thing where he's like, you fucking morons get vaccinated. But even in his stupid fucking series of columns on this, he still has to emphasize with each one with the throat clearing of I think the vaccine mandates are fascistic and they are wrong. And you should wage holy war on them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is kind of a you know a symbol of, of how captured many of these writers are by their audience. That that he can't just say, "Hey, get the vaccine so we don't die." He has to say, "Bet Midler is going to be freaking mad if you get the vaccine, and that's why you got to do it." Right. He really believes in the marrow of his bones that his audience and his readers are that stupid. Like you and I would never say or write anything that would harshly judge Republican voters nearly as much as what this guy is doing right now. <laughs> Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our guest this week is writer-director Joe Carnahan, who you might remember as the director behind such movies as Nart, Smoke and Aces, Liam Neeson films including The Grey and The A-Team adaptation, and much of NBC's The Blacklist. This year, he has two new blood-soaked action movies out, number one being Boss Level, starring Frank Grillo and Naomi Watts, which you can stream on Hulu right now. You can also check out his latest movie, the critically acclaimed Cop Shop, which stars Grillo, Gerard Butler, and newcomer Alexis Lauder. Cop Shop was just released in theaters late last week. 
Full disclosure, Joe has been one of my favorite American film directors ever since I first saw his crime drama Narc in theaters with my dad in 2003. His style and vision of filmmaking is akin to what you would get if you mixed together the Coen brothers, William Friedkin, and a bucket full of really potent cocaine. Joe, welcome to Fever Dreams. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us on the pod today. We're excited to have you. How are you doing, Joe? So when after that introduction, I can't tell you how. I'm, I'm, I'm bordering ecstatic. Can you follow me around? Like, you, can you tell that to my mom? I'd be great if you saw my mother. You couldn't afford me, Joe. My college. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much for your uh, your uh, your kudos and kind words. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. And first thing we want to talk to you about was you have just put out a movie in theaters and gone through this marketing campaign for a movie that just got a wide release during the coronavirus hellscape that is currently throttling, obviously, the entire country, arguably the entire world. But also, it's made it very hard for Hollywood to figure out how to make things profitable again. Of course, unless it is a gigantic Marvel sequel of sorts. Can you tell us a little bit about what went into making and then actually putting out this movie while the virus is still ravaging the country and hundreds of bodies are still piling up every day? Well, I mean, again, in light of an extraordinary tragedy that it's not only we're experiencing nationally, but globally, you know, it's a little insensitive, I think, to, you know, to, to kind of simply talk about the, the rigors of, of filmmaking when it's not really, but again, against the, the pandemic and against what that kind of Pose. And I think, again, I think our, our instinct is to always try to return to some sense of normalcy and some sort of, we want to be centered. And I think part of getting back to work aided in that. And I think, but again, going into that, which amounted to kind of guerrilla warfare, because you're, we used a group from Doctors with Borders that had kind of broken off that saw the, the need, the way that mercenaries and legionnaires will see this, <laughs> will see uh, the need for something and rush into the, uh, into the fray. And so it was a very, fraught process because they had, they're used to going in and shutting down Ebola outbreaks and not working on a film set. And there's a certain decorum and a certain protocol, and they weren't aware of these things. So it created a lot of problems and a lot of screaming matches and a lot of hurt feelings, and a lot of tears. And it was difficult and it was abbreviated in a lot of ways because we couldn't, I didn't have the normal, you know, it's very difficult to direct when your face is covered and your eyes are shielded because you're the natural kind of expressive range that you might depict or display for an actor is limited. So there's little things like that. And then just, again, just running headlong into the, the safety protocols and the kind of the stuff that was being forced upon everyone, which I understood. And then just the amount of false positives was really, really frustrating because it took people offline that were perfectly healthy. And again, this is not to aid in the whole ridiculous anti-vaxxer, anti-mask idiocy that's completely subsumed this country, but there was great frustration with not having those tests be uh, as consistent as they could have been. What group was this that you're describing as medical mercenaries who was a Doctors Without Borders offshoot? Is this something that the studio sends to film sets? or This is something we were working on a, other, on a prior film called Leo from Toledo, which is kind of a crime thriller that we were going to shoot in Puerto Rico. And one of these producers had put this group together and was looking to almost patent the use of this particular playbook, this kind of schematic for how you were going to battle coronavirus on set. So he kind of, he was making money off basically licensing this group to us. And I just found them to be 
wildly obnoxious and rude and and not necessarily that good at what they were doing because there was a lot of do as we say, not as we do. Like they weren't wearing masks all the time. They were kind of, and yet very kind of would chastise and kind of take umbrage at the smallest little slights. And How does that look like you're trying to direct Frank Grillo and Gerard Butler during a big shoot up scene and then there's almost like a medical mercenary group almost in essence co-directing you at the moment how did that work on set well it was difficult because i told i you know we had there was a couple one miaspras my director of photography who's a, a fiery spaniard to say the least did not appreciate them encroaching on his process and he let them know in no uncertain terms and i did have a moment of you know i'm not a yeller or a screamer i don't do the, the michael bay kind of tear people's heads off style of directing I'm reasonably chill, but they, until I feel like, okay, now you're just, now you're taking the piss. I I don't, we're not going to do this. You know, I need to be able to communicate with these people and I need to be able to direct them. And you're now interfering in that. And if I'm me fully masked with eyewear within three feet of this person, when they're also masked, it's not going to, we're not going to spread the contagion. And then I just felt that they were getting a little, now they were costing us time. And that's the biggest sin you can commit on a film set is when you start burning time because it means you're either lazy, incompetent, or a combination of the two. And it's and it's no, no bueno. To a lot of bigwig Hollywood execs, that actually isn't the biggest crime. One of the biggest crimes you can commit is losing money. By, by the way, dude, that is the thing that is the that opens the spigot on what you just said. The loss of time is the opposite and equal reaction is is the loss of money. And that's and you start losing days, you start going behind. Nothing is more costly than the day cost on a movie. They can they can range some of the Marvel films have a three to four million dollar a day day cost. It's extraordinary. So Joe, you have Cop Shot that's come out. Looks like a great shootout. We got Gerard Butler, we got Frank Grillo in a jail here. And I guess one thing I appreciate is this does not look like your typical kind of like COVID movie. This does not look like a, a guy taking a phone call for two hours. What can people expect from this movie? I mean, it looks like it's got a lot of energy. Yeah, it does. It's, you know, it's kind of this contained thriller and it's very much a throwback kind of, I was, again, you mentioned, uh, Swin, you mentioned Freak and who I absolutely adore, you know, Robert Aldrich, Don Siegel, Sam Peckinpah, those types of kind of 70s, those kind of 70s, Joseph Sargent with Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. I really wanted to make that kind of movie. In fact, we just repurposed the theme for Magnum Force at the beginning of Cop Shop. So that's Lalo Schifrin. It's just, we just did it because I just love that vibe and the way it kind of immersed you into that into that world. This kind of you're not quite sure what time frame it is, but it's kind of like when you saw No Country for Old Men. There's only one indication that that movie takes place in 1980, which is when Bardem talks about the quarter from 1958 traveling 22 years to be here, which I thought was such a brilliant conceit of that film. You had no idea that was a period film, and it was. So it was kind of just it was kind of an I wanted to make this kind of kind of an immersive kind of 70s. Uh, cop movie, Dirty Harry, which which I love, and kind of unapologetically that type of film. Gotcha. Something that you and I have talked about before, Joe, is that you, in a weird way, at least in my opinion, is one of Hollywood's more curiously political action filmmakers of the past couple of decades. Smoke and Aces, which stars guys like Ray Liotta and Ryan Reynolds, what a lot of people didn't realize when it came out during the Bush era is that it's an anti-Iraq war movie. But that kind of courses through its veins and or beneath the surface. The A-Team movie with Liam Neeson and Bradley Cooper is obviously rather anti-deep state and anti-CIA abuses. So I can kind of guess what your political and ideological perspectives were on the past five years or so. It doesn't take a genius to sort of tease that out. But what effect did it have on your creative process in terms of making an action movie over these past five years? Because I got to say, when I followed your work over the, during the Trump presidency, 
I didn't see a lot of injection of your perspective on what this presidency and this era of politics meant for the country. No, I, I think, Swin, it's kind of a, I didn't feel the need to wallow in the despair and misery that all of us, I think, were suffering from on a day-to-day basis to the point where it was, I mean, those last two years just felt like PTSD. You know, it's like there was no outrage set that Trump couldn't shatter that record the very next day. And I thought to kind of, and this is why I think that the Instagram became kind of an outlet to just kind of blow my feelings out in that way. But I certainly thought spending a year and a half of my life, you know, kind of enunciating what was already being blasted through a bullhorn would not have been mentally or creatively the best place for me to be. So I think it it became very, became more of a, let's try to alleviate and lighten the load versus drawing attention to it. Because I thought the Bush, Rumsfeld, Cheney looked like the halcyon days compared to what we just dealt with over the last four years with those idiots, the kleptocrats that, uh, that we unfortunately wound up in high power. So, and I also think it was it felt like the longest held breath of my life. I just couldn't wait for that kind of national nightmare to be over. And I think we all were. And it wasn't, and, and again, what it's done and what it's what it's kind of wrought and the wreckage it's left behind. I don't know that we're gonna get out of this in any in any in the short term. So again, I just felt it was I did it was a hat on a hat, you know. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of steer clear of that and and, and listen, man, and we did, you know, we you know, we made Wheelman and Point Blank and Boss Level and El Chicano and we had these escapist movies because I thought that's what we needed, that's what I needed, and uh, it felt like the right thing to do. Well, a lot of these movies, even though if they're not explicitly political, they still can be a reflection of the political culture at the time. I want to ask you about making a cop and hitman driven shoot 'em up in an era after Black Lives Matter and that movement has become a massive thing in American politics and culture. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming you are a supporter or a sympathizer of the Black Lives Matter movement. Is that correct? Absolutely. So was it a conscious decision of yours to cast a young Black woman in the role of the lead cop character in Cop Shop? And has that had any effect on how you write these types of movies in the current political and cultural moment we're in in that? So and I think that we've gotten, listen, this is just my own personal opinion. And, and, I, and I see kind of the outrage over the Emmys and, and the various kind of not acknowledging people of color in general. And, you know, I've had the good fortune, and, and, but not even the good fortune. I think it's just the way, that, the way that I've always looked at the world and I've always looked at life is that I've never, the first film I ever made, my friend Ken Rudolph was an African-American man who was the FBI agent. And I cast him because he was handsome. He was a reporter and he could deliver that dialogue like an FBI agent. <laughs> so, so these, these kinds of, but then I was talking to someone and he acted as though that was some sort of revolutionary thing to do in 1996. And I thought, what in the fuck are we talking about here, guys? You know, what I have always cast people of color in my movies. It's never been a, it's never been something I've consciously thought of in the way of like, let's see, I have to have a black character here and an Asian character here and a Hispanic character. I just thought these are the best people for the job. That worries me that we're in this era where you have to think about those things because if you have to think about those things, there's a systemic problem that, that predates that. That you got to look at. Do you know what I mean? Like that's my my concern. Is that right? Why all- these, you know why are these things? Why you know again with, with certain and again I'm not I'm certainly not going to point anybody. Out. I I couldn't point anybody out. I don't know who the hell what what people think about. 
I can look at, again, it's the old talk is cheap, bullshit runs a marathon. You know, it's like this actions are all, are everything. So I know what I've done. And so when I met Alexis, I just fell in love with her. And I thought her audition was far and away the most intriguing and interesting. And I thought this young African-American woman playing this kind of left-handed Billy the Kid gunfighter and this, I just thought it was super cool. And it had kind of a Pam Greer, Foxy Brown quality to it that I liked as well. So, and I do think that that's, it's just something I've done. And something I'll continue to do. And I'm glad to be able to do that. And I'm glad that, you know, I can write, you know, Bad Boys for Life and no one says, why isn't an African-American man writing that script? Or why isn't, you know, I wrote a script called Shadow Force that is basically the African-American Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I think it's dynamite. I think Lionsgate's going to make that movie. I'm very proud of it. And that's, this is just what you do. And I think that that's, again, I'm concerned that we're, again, there's a lot of talk about the change and there's a lot of facades and a lot of histrionics, but it doesn't seem to be landing with any sort of permanence. There's also a lot of shallowness in the conversation. Like, I don't know if you have kept up with the latest seasons of Law & Order SVU. I kind of watch it almost as sort of a cultural and political study of the current, of each administration. It's always interesting to see how that cop drama reflects sort of the uh, zeitgeist of the time. I'm not making this up. There is a Law & Order SVU character who is the new young female cop, I think she might be Latina, on set, whose part of her purpose there is to scold the other cops for not using the right pronouns. I am not making this up. Law & Order SVU has kind of become like woke cops in the Trump era, which I always thought, okay, Dick Wolf thinks he's making a liberal and left-wing vision of policing in New York City and in America right now. He's actually making a weirdly kind of like centrist or reactionary vision of it because it's almost like propaganda to say, oh, this is really what cops are like and this is how they talk. Whereas if you actually want to make a left-wing vision of policing in America today, it would actually look a lot more like the 2019 Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn movie Dragged Across Concrete, which is made by a right-wing reactionary filmmaker named S. Craig Zoller, who's incredibly talented. But his protagonists in the movie are misogynistic, abusive, and arguably very racist American cops. And to me, even though it was made by this right-winger, it almost seemed like a left-wing vision of policing in modern American Trump-era filmmaking. At least to me. That was my takeaway from it. My takeaway was it was 45 minutes too long. (laughs) (laughs) Get him. I'll tell you really quick. I don't know if this is true about this, but I'll tell you this really quick story I heard about that director, about Zahler, that he had apparently the studio on, apparently he's a drummer for like a a death metal band or something. He had the, he had the studio on a, a conference call, and so every time they would give him a note, he would they would he would just give him a rim shot, <laughs> which I thought if you were a drummer and you just every time you heard something, that would shut down the notes process really quickly. And I thought that was the best story I heard about that movie was him just giving rim shots on his drum kit every time the studio chimed in with a note or a change. <laughs> I wish I could do that. You know, I wish I could do that. But listen, I find things about that very sensorial. I don't like the notion of if you don't do this, you don't adhere to this, we're going to shut you down. We're going to deny you the means to to speak or express yourself. Not everybody's going to see the world through your rose-colored glasses or amber-colored glasses or whatever the hell it may be. And you've got to allow for differing creative opinions and differing creative approaches. And if you if you don't do that, 
that's extremely dangerous. That's when we get into the Orwellian kind of say these things, don't say those things. It's like, wait a minute, guys, this this stuff, whether you want to acknowledge that people speak this way or have these opinions or these bigotries, these prejudices, doesn't make them go away. In fact, it just drives them further underground. And I think if if Trump did anything, he brought this bubbling kind of bigotry and hatred and racism and sexism right to the top of the soil. So we could see it now, right? These people can't hide anymore. And there's so, listen, there's great, I think there's great progress in a weird way, in that way, that they're just out there. Their hatred is right there, man. There's no more sheets. They're not concealing it. And I think that's a good thing. But if you start to shut that down and you you force this to kind of be driven back underground, it'll just fester and ferment and become something, I think, much worse. So you got to give people uh, that leeway, whether you like it or not. You know, listen, I think those human centipede films are just absolute garbage, hot garbage, right? I have no desire to see them. But if you start shutting that down, saying, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, that's dangerous. Now, I don't have any use for them, but I'm not going to sit there and say, you can't do this. It's depraved. So, Joe, you're obviously an observer, you know, close observer of the film industry. I mean, you know, these are such tumultuous times. What movies do you think are, are reflecting uh, the times we're living in well? And, uh, you know, I mean, if you also want to, I mean, what movies stink? Oh, God. Listen, I think that we're we're in this kind of the, the salad days of the, of the superhero film. And I think that you're, you know, we're going to continue to see those. And I think, listen, I, you know, Marvel does them at an extraordinarily high level. I think Marvel and Pixar, I, I don't think they've ever been, I think they are sui generis in terms of what they do and in, in, on those, on those, uh, you know, particular totems. Um, but, you know, I think the thing is, well, I think television right now is far more reflective of what's going on in the world. And I think that I don't know that movies are have the same impact they had, like, let's say the 70s, where it was really reflective of what was going on on a societal level. I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think we're really when people go out to a theater and I think they, there's a, a general kind of the pursuit of escapism. And again, listen, I think there are filmmakers out there that no matter what they do, they're going to be crowned. They're going to be anointed. People are going to see all these wonderful extra things things in there that, and listen, I love Christopher Nolan. I couldn't watch Tenet. One, I couldn't hear it. And two, I had no idea. And I love Nolan. I do. But I'd also like to see Chris Nolan do a memento. I'd like to see him go and do a smaller film or following where he's extraordinary in that space, right? Or even his insomnia, his remake of insomnia, that was great. I just felt Tenet was something I absolutely just baffled me and telling me to watch it two or three times because I'm missing key elements. I just didn't buy it, man. But again, I but but here's what I'll say. Chris Nolan's still swinging for the fences with with original ideas and original content. And you got to have guys like that doing their thing. You got to have guys like PTA, you know, uh, doing his thing. These are important, important filmmakers, the Coen brothers doing their thing. So but I don't think that filmmaking in that way has the same impact as it did 30, 35, 40 years ago. I just don't think it does. Why is that? I don't think we reward those movies any longer. I think movies like that come along like My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and listen, I'm certainly not saying that's a good film, but I'm saying one of those things that kind of captures the zeitgeist and just, and has that tremendous run, the Blair Witch Project, you know, these things are so infrequent. And even, you know, even going back to the 70s, All the President's Men, you know, that would be made on television. That'd be, that'd be a Netflix limited series. They wouldn't make that as a film. My brother wrote Dark Waters with Mark Ruffalo about the DuPont poisoning. And it was a lovely independent film. That should have been a movie they made 
35 years ago, you know, with Dustin Hoffman, probably would have been a big hit. Nothing against, I adore Mark Ruffalo, but I'm talking about this era and this time. I don't think we have the patience for it any longer. I don't think, I remember showing, I mean, my daughter's now, God, this was years ago, but my kid's now in her mid-20s, but I remember showing her 2001, and it was the Jupiter and Beyond sequence. And she's lays, she lays down next to me, and, and she said, I'm explaining, oh, this is Stanley Kubrick. This is considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Five minutes later, she goes, how about the most boring filmmaker of all time? <laughs> And she was out, you know, so we don't have that, you know, there's a movie 2001, the older I get, the more I adore that film, because I think it was saying a lot about Kubrick was way ahead of the curve on artificial intelligence and where the kind of the the human consciousness, like where we were headed, uh, the the meeting of man and machine. There's so much in that you can parse that you really are, you really can get a lot out of it, whether it was intentional or not. um, There's a hell of a lot that you can glean from from that movie. And again, as I've gotten older, it's become more near and dear to me. So I just think that's why we don't have the patience any longer. And you can see it. Listen, you used to have a, used to have a, like a critical body of film writers, Pauline Kael, Andrew Sarris, Vincent Canby, Roger Ebert, who are scholars. Now you have fanboys. Now you have the occasional critic that frequently doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. That has no, I read some idiot again saying I perfected my Quentin Tarantino, but it's like, because that's the problem. They don't have any sense of movies or cinema uh, pre the kind of the, the, the fanboy pop culture era. And so they're stuck. So everything is written about in terms of this very limited scope and view. And back then, if you had, even if Pauline Kael didn't like your film, she found something redeeming about it, something that she could appreciate. I mean, it wasn't just this, this sucked because I don't like this and these movies, are, you know, these aren't being written by, by the way, they're, they're also poorly constructed. They're not well-written. These aren't good writers. And I just think there's a slovenly, sloppier way that we go about things in this era, in this day and age of social media and instant gratification. We don't require the kind of the fastidiousness and the minutia and the kind of the craftsmanship that it did back then, the patience. Since we only have a couple more minutes here, I want to end on asking you sort of a two-part question. Going back to Cop Shop, we talked about the difficulties of making a movie during the COVID era, but also in terms of releasing one during the COVID era. Cop Shop ended up being rather critically acclaimed. So congratulations on that, on the reviews then that you and your cast and crew got. But at the same time, it really did not do well at the box office. Obviously, the pandemic is an element to that. You've talked before about how you think there was perhaps a failure in the marketing leading up to it. And I just want to talk to you about like what it was like to release a movie during the coronavirus pandemic when you knew that that would be a huge element in terms of just losing potentially tens of millions of dollars on this movie that you labored over. And also, we obviously have to ask you about how there has been some drama and mystery surrounding the post-production of this movie. Uh, Frank Grillo took to social media recently to accuse producers of putting out a cut of the movie that he thought was significantly worse than what you and he would have preferred to put out. There were people in your cast thanking people who were involved in this movie. I don't think a single one of them thanked Gerard Butler, even though they thanked a hell of a lot of people involved with the movie. So, it's not hard to read between the lines on that one. Can you uh, dig in a little bit on that? I almost got in this interview without avoiding it. It was a la- you threw a lot. La- this is the last second knockout punch that you threw. Listen, I think in all honesty, the producers, they put out a version that they felt was going to be the most financially successful and profitable for them. And I have to respect that, although I vehemently disagreed with it. You know, the reviews were were really good, even for that version. And I'll say this, I think that version is is business and information and exposition. And mine is, my version is art and style. 
and they're very they're they're very very different in that way. And that and again that that's not to say that that mine would be received any better. It's just a very different film. But I say this with great humility. I still respected that they felt that they needed to release this version. It was shorter. It gave them more of what they wanted in terms of appeasing certain people and making them happy. But I think, Swin, what this really comes down to, Pandemic Be Damned, was an absolute failure in marketing. That other films have managed to exist. They released two other films with Liam Neeson earlier in the pandemic that were more successful, their opening weekend. So how does one rectify that fact. So, and I don't know, honestly, as it's gone down, that the version that I, let's call it the director's version, director's cut of the film, would have fared any better if you don't have a successful marketing campaign. Marketing is 90% of the ball game. And if you didn't, if you can't get the eyes and ears, and I had a lot of people say to me, I had no idea the movie was coming out. I didn't know it was being released. Halloween Kills, that, that trailer dropped yesterday and virtually the world knew about it, right? What's the difference? What's happening? It's the approach. It's the campaign. And so, unfortunately, they got to lick their wounds. And and listen, I'm hoping that there's a time and a place where I can show the world that other version. I think Frank was justified in his in his grievance. I wish it had come out at a later time, but he felt you know suitably exercised and upset, and he wanted to say his piece, and he had the right to do that because it was not what the performance that we had constructed. And you don't get a pass in that way. You don't just get to kind of do your thing and, and tell everybody to keep their mouths shut. And that's just not the way things work. And again, I, I bring this all back to, at the end of the day, it is the movie business. It's not the art business. It's not the artist business. It's the movie business. So this is, you take your lumps and you move on. And I chose my words very carefully and I didn't want to hinder or inhibit anybody. I'm glad I got the reviews it did, bully for them. You know, I still see a good deal of what we did. It's just not what I wanted. And oftentimes, man, you don't win those battles and that's just life in the big city and you got to suck it up and move on. And I told them after this weekend, I, you know, I bore no ill will and I don't like to see anything fail or anything not do as well as people thought it was, but go make another movie. And this is what survivors do and onward and upward for everybody. And I'm hoping that that's the vibe and I don't hold any rancor. I don't hold any animus toward anyone. I'm looking at the next thing, and and that's what I think is really important. Well, if if we can just start the movement here, I say release the Grillo cut. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, it would probably get more traction if it was released the Grillo cut versus released the Carnahan cut. So yeah, let's rename it the Grillo cut. But you know, listen, by the same token, we got to make a movie during that time. I got to work with all my friends, people I just love and and adore, and and that was a lot of fun. And I won't, I don't want to diminish that experience. And uh, I think the world of those people, and they're really talented and and um, great at what they do. And listen, like I said, we got that experience, and we got to go and work at a time when the world is essentially shut down. So I never want to denigrate that in any way. That was a big deal. Well, on that uplifting note, uh, Joe, we're we're gonna have to head out right now. But again, really want to thank you for stopping by the pod. Come back anytime. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. And that's Cop Shop. And thanks, Will. I really appreciate it, guys. It was, a, it was a blast. It was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And now time to get back to what is perhaps our most beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, in which we introduce our audience into something batshit that's happening in the world today that you may not believe is actually happening, but very much so is. Will, tell us a little bit more about what you've been tracking in NFT mania these days. Yeah, this isn't just a fresh hell. This is an investment opportunity. 
So, you know, like people may have seen the, the global economy is hitting the skids. Maybe we're going to flip the debt ceiling or whatever, whatever they call it. Maybe the Evergrande is going to bring our economy to, to its knees. But so maybe you want to invest in NFTs, and by which I mean non-fungible tokens, the screenshots that people love spending money on and have made some of our generation's absolute worst artists incredibly wealthy. I'm thinking of people who make paintings of like Elon Musk beating up Bart Simpson or whatever. So here we have... <laughs> Wait a minute. Can you give me one of those for like Christmas or something? That sounds awesome. I've, I have not seen that painting <laughs> it's like before. $500,000. Wait, have you, have you not seen this oh, people wow. guy, like the king of the NFTs? Actually, no. No, do explain. I mean, it's just like NFT art, the actual successful stuff is the absolute worst. Okay, so here's the deal. So, and I know I'm going to, ideally, I'll get a bunch of people with like uh, pixel gorillas and their avatars coming after me. Okay, so, however, NFTs are not just limited to people with like fat penguins for 10 grand. This is also reaching out to some of our favorite right-wing characters. So I'm reluctant to give them attention, but the Krasenstein brothers, who people may remember as famously cut Trump reply guys, they've been kicked off of Twitter. They're trying to get back in the game. And so they've linked up with this like weird little NFT operation, this like Bitcoin social media network or like a crypto network. And they recently bought a NFT of that Tiffany Trump sold of herself partying. And in exchange, she bought an NFT they made of her. So, and that's sort of like a prelude, right? This is the the new era of NFTs, internet fame balls, getting a couple hundred bucks of, of Ethereum. But now another guy wants in. The man who is allegedly behind QAnon himself, Ron Watkins, is selling NFTs of his tweets. Swin, what do you think about this investment opportunity? Is this a buy, sell, or hold? Uh, uh, I mean, unironic answer set on fire, I would have to say. <laughs> So, so, you know, a little background on Ron. If you saw Q Into the Storm on HBO uh, featuring your humble podcast host, Ron oh, yeah. is the sort of widely believed by, by people who watch it, um, including myself, to be the most likely person who currently controls the QAnon handle or the, the Q posting account. He denies it for what it's worth. But nevertheless, Ron is, has more recently tried to position himself as a sort of right-wing talking head with varying degrees of success. And so now he's selling NFTs. And for, for those of you who have not been riding this uh, this 100-foot wave, um, so NFTs are digital items. And so in, in Ron's case, he has minted five tweets that uh, of his that were retweeted by Trump. And he calls them the Freedom Series. One of the tweets was retweeted on January 3rd, <laughs> 2021, reading, if you are planning to attend the peaceful protest in D.C. on the 6th, I recommend wearing a body camera. This was, of course, tweeted by Ron and retweeted by then leader of the free world, Donald J. Trump. Obviously, Trump is now banned from Twitter, so that retweet doesn't technically currently exist at the moment, but it happened. Oi. Okay, so he's selling this tweet <laughs> this retweet it is odd to be selling another guy's retweet so the nft market is not exactly going wild here for this this qanon inflected nft it currently as i, I checked right before we started recording it sits at 600 bucks eh, not exactly beeple levels the it's not gonna be getting written up in like bloomberg art or what have you and so but worse perhaps worse ron watkins is fans um, I would say the vast majority of them are just like, what is this? What is an NFT? But others are saying you're selling out always about the bucks. And indeed, the biggest irony here is that Q taught people, taught QAnon fans to always be on the watch for patriots. And I say that patriots with a Y, people who are only looking to get paid. And now I fear that they have begun to see that Ron is himself a patriot, or at least worry that that is. They, the they couldn't see that from all the other stuff he was doing? <laughs> like... <laughs> 
Now you're selling a blow up of, of Mr. Trump retweeting you. Now we've had it. That's our red line. It is an odd one, I, I, I think, to wake up to or to, to suddenly have that as your blue pill moment. Something I have to revisit from what you were talking about earlier regarding the NFT gold rush. The Krasensteins intersecting with Tiffany Trump in this whole affair. Haven't the Krasensteins been doing other things recently that are making some of their online fans who flock to them because they, for whatever reason, view them as resistance heroes during the Trump presidency? Haven't they been doing things that intersect with MAGA land that have kind of pissed off their fans and made them say, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Well, certainly, I mean, certainly they're real buddy-buddy with Tiffany Trump, among other things. I mean, it, this is sort of this weird, like, universe where you have these these characters of somewhat marginal internet celebrity. And particularly when you get banned from a main platform, that celebrity starts shrinking really quickly. And so you have to kind of ping off of one another. In fact, I, as we were recording, uh, one of the Krasenstein's wives tweeted, oh, look, we sold another NFT. And indeed, they tagged me, which I don't really appreciate. I was not involved <laughs> in this NFT. I was not involved in this NFT transaction. I want to be clear. I'm not getting my beak wet. You got to keep treading water on this big internet of ours. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,